0: Welcome to Hooked on Bond, where three longtime fans discuss the James Bond films. Welcome
1: to our new James Bond podcast. This
0: is Brian. I'm Edmund. And I'm Gary. And this is episode one, and we are talking about Dr. No, which was from 1962 and starred Sean
2: Connery as James Bond. Yeah, let to start with the first one.
0: Absolutely. So, Gary, why don't you give a quick crack at a basic uh, plot summary here?
2: Ah, well, um, so this is the first James Bond movie, and in this film, Bond is dispatched to Jamaica to solve the murder of uh, a couple of British uh, British office agents and uh, encounters Dr. No. I think that's a pretty general description of the movie
0: and we have the uh, additional complication, uh, sort of interesting for its time, that there was something being investigated that the original agents were looking after, which was this idea of uh, the space program and launches being interfered with uh, through these transmissions from Jamaica.
2: Yeah, I mean, in fact, if. I guess it's, if you're looking at trends that start in Bond movies, Bond is often brought in to uh, fix things after someone's been killed. So yeah, Bond's that, the guy you go to when your first agent got killed.
0: That's right.
2: And you can, you can actually point that out in, in other movies as we get to them. But uh, yeah, Bond is, is basically sent in to try and solve the problem. In the, in the first movie, there's almost a more of a detective feel to it. He, he investigates, he interviews a bunch of people. That's less the case in other movies where he seems to know who the bad guy is right away. So in this movie, he's actually really finding his feet. I think they they sort of made it more like a detective story.
0: Yes, there's that sense of the investigation there.
1: The first time I'd really thought of this movie is you know almost like you know Agatha Christie with sex and violence thrown in. Um, You know, not the you know he's it's almost Bond as you know, a modern, more sophisticated, you know, Poirot or something like that, as these go again and just, you know, connecting the dots and uh, following the leads and uh, finding in, in the witnesses. Way- yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, and then and, and, and certainly compared to some of the the, the, the grander set pieces, they'll, they'll move on to the, you know, the actual catching of the bad guy at the end and the confrontation, you know, feels almost perfunctory in this one.
0: Yeah, it feels sort of like you have uh, something in two or three acts where you have an introductory section that's more of this investigation, and what it builds into is the, the whole section in Dr. No's lair, and the... The villain is finally revealed after uh, after some time, and you get this uh, idea of of Bond being invited in by the villain, and uh, the sort of dis- discussion over drinks is something that we do tend to see later on uh, for sure. And you get those kinds of things and that type of. Of build up. So I think there definitely are some things in the shape of this that are the type of thing that we do see later.
2: Yeah, and I like the okay. three-act like three point. Certainly the first act is everything just in Kingston, and then the second act would be meeting Honey on the Beach, and then the third act would be Dr. No in his lair. That's right.
1: Yeah, but but it's interesting how in some in many ways I'm mean, sort of the most suspenseful part of the movie is that middle section, you know when they when they first get to the key and they're trying to avoid the guards and um, you know doing the you know, breathing with the reeds under the water and then the whole confrontation with the dragon, the you know and and even there was. And I couldn't help noticing this. Uh, you know, this is, this is five years before Star Trek, but, you know, the, the fact that Quarles wearing a red shirt, we should have realized. <laughs> we there's, a sort of, there's
0: a sort of cat and mouse game in that middle act, which is kind of neat, actually. I think before we go too much further, we should talk about uh, the cast of characters and actors we have here. Obviously, yeah. we're looking at Sean Connery as James Bond. His first outing, and not his first film, but his first, I think, really well-known film. He was not a well-known actor at the time.
2: What, Darby O'Gill and the Little People didn't do well? I don't (laughs) think it was a massive success, no.
0: Uh, But you have something where he really is building that character and so on, so he's sort of uh, a new big thing for this. And I think we really had a cast of a lot of sort of not very well-known actors at all. Uh, Ursula Andress as Honey Rider, I believe this was her first film. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, she was there um, uh, largely for decorative purposes, can we say?
2: And and did a great job, <laughs> a an excellent right. job. <clears throat> I mean, the only issue for her really was uh, was her voice. Uh, as as everyone knows, probably she was dubbed completely. Her Swedish accent was uh, way too strong for the film. But when you watch these movies, I mean, you see that they're they're conveying the emotions perfectly well. So they, they're doing a good job with their part. I mean, this the scene where she talks about killing uh, killing the man. Um, who basically raped her, it's a strong scene. It's impressive. It's also, uh, yeah. It was a professional
0: uh, voice artist who was doing the uh, the dubbed-in voice there, and it was one that actually worked quite well. It was, uh, it really did work surprisingly well, I think. Someone that was interesting, I had sort of forgotten about this, Jack Lord, who would yeah. go on to be well known for Hawaii 5.0 a few years later? Yep. He was in there playing Felix Leiter.
2: The first yep. of many, many Felix Leiters. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a various description. But, yeah, and uh, it's funny.
2: He's basically playing like his character from Hawaii 5.0 for the most part.
1: Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Oh, yeah,
2: no, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's he, one of the. He,
1: he, he, Even if he does have that that slightly strange taste in sunglasses at the beginning there, but uh, Uh, I know it was 62.
2: (laughs) Now, he's one of the few actors to actually be able to escape the Bond movies with his own, like, with another persona, or sort of, oh, he's in the Bond movie, I didn't know, as opposed to simply being known as having been in a Bond movie. Yes, that's, (laughs) that's true.
0: And I, and I, I think, think there were a few others, but he yeah. definitely would be one of the big ones.
2: Yeah, and I mean, like for example, a great example is the next one we'll probably talk about, which was the villain, Doctor No, um, Joseph Wiseman, who actually just passed away very recently. Uh, was born in Montreal, and he did a lot of stage work. Um, uh, he did a lot of lot of movies at the time. I think he did some TV as well. But basically, he became just known as Doctor No after that, and and. It was written, and when he passed away, he resented the fact that everyone only knew him for Dr. No, and that—that's what he was famous for. And it, and he had, uh, I think, a long career after that, right? He did, yeah. He continued to work on stage yeah. and in, in TV and and movies.
1: Yeah, but it no. was whole thing of, of having this long career, doing all these other wonderful roles, but yeah. the, the only one anyone ever talked about was, yeah. was this
2: he was in uh, he was in the adventures of diddy kravitz actually he played diddy's
1: uncle
0: oh my goodness right
1: yeah that's right that's right okay yeah
0: it, <laughs> it was a a memorable performance as dr no i think uh, Absolutely. it was it was very good and in many ways i think set the tone for bond villains
2: that's right no it was great it was and it's really only about a what, six, seven minutes of actual screen time if you discount the ending where he doesn't really do much. It's that one Mm -hmm. dinner scene. It's terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But it gives you that sort of uh, casual diplomatic kind of interaction with Bond and the strange disability or um, uh, injury with... Yeah, deformity. Yes. The strangely deformed Bond villain. so in this case having no hands.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it they've was, always got to have a twisted motivation, so that's always helpful. Yes.
0: It was slightly odd having the uh, the makeup to make them look more Asian.
2: Yeah, that's true. That's probably not the worst, uh, that's not the first example of bad uh, makeup in a Bond movie, but yeah.
0: Well, I believe in the book it was explained that he was supposed to be half German and half Chinese. And they did say that in the movie. They did say that yeah. in the movie. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I, I must admit <laughs> that, that this time.
1: Yeah. Okay. It, it does come up over dinner. Um, right.
2: Yeah, it's a great dinner during which, uh, during which, Dr. No name drops Spectre and gives you a sort of a heads up about this evil organization behind the scenes.
0: Yes. Yep. Which is another very 1960s kind of thing because we get into the, the Cold War sensibility of uh, the Bond films or of many of the Bond films and Spectre was very clearly stated in this and stated later as well as like a third party or a third player in the Cold War it's like you have the East, you have the West and then you have Spectre
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And they explain yeah. Spectre as standing for Special Executive Counterintelligence Terrorism Revenge and Extortion. Yep. Which then... I had forgotten that it was actually an acronym.
2: Oh yeah, no, yeah. I that's I've always remembered that one. <laughs> yeah. No, it's good, and it it leads to good dialogue where Bond says he'd he'd take up the revenge angle if he was a part of Spectre, which I, I quite liked. Yes. No, there's there's a lot of great uh, dialogue in that scene, really shows the way Bond generally tries to get under the skin of his enemies, and uh, how they always kind of want to impress him with how villainous they are. I guess it's the, their need to play to an audience, the classic, uh, the villains failing, of course. <laughs> if only they didn't need an audience...
0: <laughs> absolutely, and I think if there was any one scene in this that set the tone for future things in Bond films, it was probably that scene.
2: Oh, absolutely.
1: Oh, oh, for sure. Yeah. No I mean, you know, whole, this whole concept of you know, yeah, but, you know, the the the. the Arch villain who you know yes you know you know if he feels Bond, feel, you know the it's the only person who can really understand him so he's got to explain it all to him <laughs> but, uh, you know, which of course has been been parodied down the years but uh, you know but in, in in this first movie I mean it, it, it really does work you know people may may see things as cliches but you know but a lot of cliches you know have a a a, a very good beginning and this and that's certainly the case here
0: absolutely. We also have a few recurring characters for the Bond films being introduced here. We have Bernard Lee as M, and he, of course, had uh, a very long-running and uh, and rich acting career in the UK.
2: Yep, he was in the Third Man, I believe.
0: That's that's right. He had a small role in the Third Man, but he was there, and he he was in um, some television programs uh, at different times. He, he did a lot of different things at
2: that, yeah. I believe. No, but I mean, The Third Man being the movie that people now would still see him in. Most of those movies, yes, unfortunately, have, true. have been lost to time. Uh, but The Third Man lives on.
0: Yes, it does. As does uh, an odd little one-off uh, Nigel Neal television program called Moraine. Ah. which had him in uh, a, a very different role, but uh, a good one as well. Hmm. Of course, we have Lois Maxwell being introduced as Miss Moneypenny.
2: That's right. And uh, it's always nice to see how back in the beginning, when they were, when they were pretty much the same age, how, how really like, the, the sexual tension was pretty strong between them. Later it became almost a joke, but uh, those first few scenes were really good, very charming almost. Yes, no, absolutely. I, very charming, really, not just almost. <laughs> they also had the Bond showing up at the office, the, the arrogance, the tossing the hat onto the stand. Those are trademark elements of the character that uh, I think the film wanted to make him more less grim and more lighthearted in some ways.
0: I yes, find, I, think, I think that's right.
2: I find that yeah. a, lot, a lot of times during the movie, he does things in a more jovial manner. Um, there are moments of coldness, obviously, but uh, we could talk about some of those. I mean, I find that his, his sense of humor, even in the scenes where, where people are lying to him directly, he always seems to treat it as a joke. I mean, they should know that he knows. The, the best example is the, uh, the scene where he's um, with uh, Miss Tarot in her, in her house, and yeah. they've, just, they've just made love, and she lies about the taxi. And he, he reacts to it almost with laughter, like, so obviously you're lying to me. <laughs> and she doesn't even seem to notice that. Of course, they then go back to what they were doing before.
0: There's a bit of a playfulness there, isn't there? Yeah,
2: it's just, it's, it, he's laughing at her. <laughs> you're such a bad liar.
0: And we also get in with that idea with some of the humor. We get some of the, the first of the, um, the zippy one-liners. That the Bond franchise is known for yeah,
2: which was uh, that where the i 'm thinking maybe it's when the the three blind mice die one or? of
0: them was uh, when he had um, the guy he had killed in the car is sitting in the car and he goes oh. into the into the hotel and says, you know oh you you uh, what was the line it He's, was uh, uh,
2: He's, um, he's dead tired maybe or he's something like that yeah yep. <clears throat> the assassin earlier in the movie
0: yeah there, there was a, there was a line in there with that and according to the DVD extra features it was something that Connery delivered it in a very offhand way so they sort of built that into doing the one liners and added a couple of other ones into the film uh, there was also one when, when the car tumbles over the cliff. Yeah. yeah,
2: they were on their way to a funeral. Yes.
0: Yeah.
2: <clears throat> it's a hearse, anyways. I think.
0: Yes, I think you're right.
2: <clears throat> so yeah, no, that's a pretty funny scene. Although the guy who says, well, "How did it happen?" right before that, it's like, "Well, how did it happen? You left your crane parked in the middle of the road." Yeah. <laughs> that's how it happened.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: And luckily, I was in an MG, so I got underneath it. <laughs> exactly.
0: <so>. Yeah. <laughs> We also have a rather interesting one-off turn in this by Anthony Dawson as Professor Dent, who is not exactly the, not exactly a henchman villain, but sort of the, almost the junior villain of the piece.
1: Yeah? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I mean, you get the, I mean, he, he's sort of a aspiring villain. <laughs> the way yeah. I really look at it. Yeah. You know, yeah, he, yeah he, he, he's kind of excited to have be, been, roped into this, but, uh, you know, but in in, in the end, he's, re- he's really a bit of a stooge. But.
0: Yes. There were a couple of interesting moments with his character. One was uh, related to, certainly everyone remembers the famous scene with Bond and the tarantula. Yep. yep. And there was the lead-up with Professor Dent being given the tarantula. At this point, we don't know what Dr. No looks like. We've only heard his voice. Yeah. And Professor Dent has to pick up the cage with the tarantula to uh, to plant it. And he's walking very nervously and carrying it at arm's length.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that was a chunk of what sold the scene where you actually have the the tarantula in in the bed where it's been planted with Bond. Mm.
2: It's interesting. For me, the scene where he's given the tarantula is all about the set design. Yes, uh, I just that love too. that. I love the set, and I never really seem to notice Dent at that point once he gets into that cool set, which apparently, I was reading afterwards, was designed for almost nothing, because they had no money, and so they just basically used angles and shadow and and shading, because there's really nothing in the scene. It's just a a room with a wall.
0: Yeah, it was all done <clears> with the the roof panel with the grid on it and how it was lit.
1: Yeah. Oh okay. yeah.
0: So yeah, the the set piece was definitely fantastic in that scene in that scene, no question. But I quite enjoyed that performance
2: too. Yeah. Oh and Dent gets mm. the great death scene in the movie too. He really I mean it's it's also that cold moment when Connery just shoots him. Yes. Um, which, is, mm-hmm. which is great, you've had your six and then just puts a couple yeah. extra bullets in him for good measure he could mm-hmm. have arrested him eh, it's not yeah. necessary apparently
0: when they were working on the film they had, the op- they had several different options for just how cold and callous uh, Bond would be in that scene and they ended up choosing the most extreme coldest one that they had there
1: yeah, just, just yeah. Sit, sitting there and let and let it letting him shoot, knowing. <laughs> yeah, but, and
0: uh, and basically just executing him at that point.
1: Mm-hmm. No, it's just uh, what I I love that scene as well because after you've had sort of all the flippant sort of you know seductive bond, um, you know, then we you know once 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 they've taken her away and he just you know sort of seamlessly slips into the. You know, a- agent assassin mode of setting everything up and, you know, taking his place and, you know, and then just, you know, just lying in wait for, uh, you know, for, well, he, he, he says he expected the professor, but, uh, you know, for them to come after him. Um, you know, but all just just very cool, very precise, and, you know, just, you know getting a sense of the, uh, you know, the, experienced, accomplished agent, you know, that he's not just this flippant playboy type. Yeah, absolutely. First
2: first he's the lover, then he's the killer. And I love love the way he sets the scene up, where he puts all the little things in the right place, pours the drinks, you know, scatters Mm -hmm. the clothes around, throws a magazine down here and there, moves a chair, then he goes into the room and he just takes up the deck of cards and plays solitaire as quietly, which is pretty quiet, of course. And, waits. and this also goes with like the scene where he first arrives in the hotel earlier on where he puts the, um, the hair over the, the, the division of the door frame. Little things like that, little details that really are, are very nice touches.
0: Yes, there is a nice sense of the sort of methodical detail going into uh, these little things which was which was nice there. We also had Peter Burton uh, briefly in here as Major Boothroyd, the type of role that would eventually evolve into the the Q character that we're so familiar with. That brings in, there was really not a, a, a gadget or a set of gadgets of any sort in this film. This really predates that. But what mm-hmm. we have in instead is the uh, the idea of Bond being told to discard his gun and use a different one.
1: Yes.
2: Yeah. That, that nicely illustrates Bond's slightly rebellious nature to his boss. And uh, it also really nicely uh, delineates the father-son relationship that M and Bond have. Yes. Which is interesting, and that's one of the strong elements there, and it also shows the difference between the various M's and the relationships they have with Bond that we'll see later on.
0: Yes, absolutely. I,
2: Peter Burton
0: certainly was fine as Boothroyd for what he had to do there, but I think Bernard Lee was a fantastic choice for him.
2: No, I, absolutely.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, just, I mean, just building on that, you know, the whole father-son relationship part, I mean, that whole thing of where, you know, now where, when, he's, when he's calling through to Monty Penny, you know, knowing exactly what, Bond doing, you know. So you know the, you know, you know, just sort of demonstrating that, you know, no, he knows him backwards and forwards, you know, and he, you know, and he, allowing him the latitude, you know. But you know, then there's still that sort of, you know, fatherly, you know, kicking the butt to get off, you know, to get to get on with the job as well.
0: Yes, it gives us this nice sort of sense that these people really know each other. This is not something that they're just starting up or that it's sort of the beginning for Bond. This is something they've been doing for a while. These people know each other. And that was, that was sort of nice.
2: Yep. I guess as we were talking about that early scene, we maybe want to backtrack even further to the earliest scene in the movie, which is um, yeah. Bond at the club. Well, it's not the first sure, scene, but certainly yeah. the, the introduction of James Bond, obviously, is, is another yeah. brilliant scene. Just it's, it's really great. Watching this, though, it was funny. I always thought the first mention of James Bond's name was when he says it. But actually, someone does show up saying, I'm looking for James Bond. Yes, So right. that isn't the, it, that's yeah. actually the first mention of the James Bond name. But it's quickly forgotten after the, the really well-done scene that follows, the, the baccarat table. Or is it Shimon d'Affaire? I can never tell which one he's playing. (laughs) They're virtually the same game. There's some stupid difference that I never understood. We do. I think it's
0: always uh, interesting, as we'll get to over time, each time they have a new actor as Bond, there's always something interesting with the (laughs) introduction, the visual introduction of James Bond. And it certainly was here, where you have a series of close-ups where you don't quite see him but you sort of see him you see him from behind you see his hands and then finally when you get a real shot of him a real visual it's with bond james bond which of course is the first time we hear that line as well
2: yeah no the introduction was brilliantly done brilliantly done, and I guess Terence Young, the director, was probably the guy to credit with most of this, and uh, I mean, from what I understand, he also more or less took Connery under his wing and turned him into Bond to some extent. I think the Connery that showed up was had the charm, he had the roughness about him, but he didn't have quite mm-hmm. the gentlemanly nature, and it, I think that the story is that Young took him to his tailor and, and made him wear the right kind of suits, and and sort yeah. of gave him advice on on certain aspects of you know culture and and grace and that sort of thing
0: yes there was mm-hmm. a sense of panache that young was really yeah uh, intent on bringing to james bond and bringing to the to the role and it certainly um is something that uh, that that you know, really, uh, was very successful and set the tone for that again.
2: Yeah, they got it right yeah. off the right off the bat.
1: Yeah, I know. because I've, I've heard a story about when, when they were doing the casting in terms of the sort of you know the, the, the raw animal charisma that uh, Cubby Broccoli and the uh, other producers were you know look, looked out the window and saw this guy striding down the sidewalk like a panther. And, uh, you know, and it, and it was Connery. So, you know, no, in terms of, you know, sort of the raw physical presence, you know, you know that he had in spades. And then, you know, no, that they needed to, you know, smooth out the rough edges. Not, you know, get, 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 give him a little bit of training in uh, doing the rest of Bond. Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. And that, that scene also introduces one more recurring character, although she didn't recur for very much, but uh, yeah. Sylvia Trench who was sort of introduced as a bit of a James Bond's girl at home, and I mm. think they were going to try to set up the gag that he would always be running out from her bed, pretty much, to go on his mission.
0: Right. Uh, mm.
2: But the, fortunately, that play they, they, they gave that up fairly quickly. Uh, I would say that um, a much later Bond girl, I know we're not supposed to talk too much about future movies, but eventually they would play up on that and, and sort of introduce someone who might have been a, a Sylvia Trench-type character later on.
0: Right. She was played as a bit of the 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 glamour girl who was back at home. Yeah.
2: And also, I mean, very forward in the sense she breaks into his apartment on the first night right after she's met him uh, yes. basically to have sex with him and that's I, I would think that would probably have been unusual for the time.
0: I would think so. Yes. Yeah, for
1: 1962, that was uh, that, that, that was not usual behavior. <laughs>
0: Okay, we I've, I'd like to talk about the music and the famous Bond theme, which was introduced here. Uh, the soundtrack was written by Monty Norman, uh, and uh, John Barry, who would later be involved much more, was doing some orchestration and conducting for it. But something that... Um, was sort of interesting as they were working on the film and they really didn't have a theme. They didn't know what to use. And uh, Monty Norman sort of dug up uh, something he had written before and played around with it a bit. And then John Barry played around with it a bit more. And lo and behold, the, uh, the James Bond theme was born. That's and, how it happens. Yeah, and of course, it's uh, it's a fantastic piece of music, and it was very different for its time. Although the way it was used in this film, I would say, is a little bit odd.
2: Uh, how, how did they use it in that way? I mean, the opening, the opening credits, I guess.
0: It was used in the opening titles, which was fine. Yep. But it was put in as incidental music. Uh, at moments where very little was happening
2: sort of traveling and music
0: it was put in in transition scenes and that uh, it it would later turn into like the big uh, the big action theme and the big uh, yes things are really really moving now this is a James Bond film where at this point it was almost like it was being put in to speed up the slow moments. Maybe more in retrospect because of how we're used to it, but it felt like it was being overused and maybe not used to the best effect. But nonetheless, uh, it still was great to hear it there um, and to have that piece of music as part of this right from the beginning
1: yeah I, I'm not to until you mentioned it, I hadn't really thought about it I guess part of it is with, with this movie because so much of it is set up and so relatively little of it is action um it didn't occur to me I'm just sort of so used to you know to, to hearing that music scattered throughout a Bond film. um but you're right I mean in this yeah and in, in this case I mean you know, this, they were still still feeling their way around it and uh you know, yeah com-, com compared to the way it gets it becomes uh, sort of I- iconic in the movies you know yeah, it is slightly different but i but I put that as much to just the uh, you know sort of you know, smaller scale and focus of this first film
0: yeah, absolutely. it felt almost like they were trying to use it as a character theme and then also maybe a little bit like they Uh, don't have as much music or as much sort of thematic music for the film as they would like to have. I could be wrong Mm. about that, but it felt a little bit like they were slightly short on things, so they would just pop it in whenever they could. (laughs) However, that said, it's still great to hear it there, and in many ways does bring the, the... film up and the tension up a level because it has a great sense of tension to it.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And and of course, I mean, talking about the, the theme and the credits. I mean, you know, right, right from the beginning, we have the you know, the, the iconic gunshot through the uh, through the barrel and uh, the blood the blood coming down to start everything off.
0: Absolutely. That scene started with this. The music they used. They did use the Bond theme, but it was edited in and uh, timed differently from what they do later on. hmm But yeah, certainly we, uh, we have that right from the beginning. It was one of the few times, I believe, this doesn't last very long, where in the gun barrel sequence, Bond is wearing a hat. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well it you wasn't did. it wasn't even Connery in that shot. It was someone else. I forget yeah. who it was, but it was a it, stunt he, man, I think. It, yeah, it was a stunt man.
0: And <laughs> did they do an overlay okay. with Connery or was it just completely the stuntman? It's
2: completely the stunt man it in is, the first okay. movie. <laughs> yeah. Future movies yeah. I think it's Connery and, and the Bond. The correct yeah. bond. But yeah. in that one it was just somebody. <laughs> In yeah. a hat. Yeah. In a
1: hat. Yeah. A hat. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although I've, I've always taken that in a way, it was almost like you know, no, you know, we haven't really met him yet. so We're not going to show him to you. <laughs>
0: That's true. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you actually meet him in the film.
0: <laughs> there are a few things that um, jumped out as uh, as being uh, sort of very much of their time and very much being dated than. Uh, the fact that Bond was wearing a hat in, in this uh, for quite a bit of the time was definitely um, definitely part of it, sort of a hangover from the 19, 1950s style of when you go outside, you wear your hat.
1: Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah well, yeah. well, people forget the 50s extended until like the mid-60s. <laughs>
2: yeah, Bits of it, certainly, yeah. So, you've got the opening credits, uh, Maurice Binder doing his first work for the series. That's right. um, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it, it's fairly simplistic, it's a bunch of dots for the most part, then it, it then segues into a swaying Calypso uh, beat with, like, dancing figures. We get but our first series. animated silhouette. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's definitely the beginning of what would go on to be another really important tradition of the Bond movies.
0: And it's really about, good, yeah. it's
2: great. Even now, I still enjoy those credits
0: yes they're very well done for sure uh i think we've talked about a lot of sort of the bits and pieces in here uh, and let's sort of jump into our take on things so what did we like about i know we've covered some of this as we went as we've gone through it but what did we particularly like about this film
2: well, uh, I love the fact that it's just the introduction to everything, and that, that every part of it seems fun to me. Uh, it's beautiful to look at, it's really well shot. I, I don't even, I think most movies from that era just don't look this good. They don't look as colorful, um, at least the ones that I that I still see now from that era, they don't look as good as this movie. I find every part of this movie is enjoyable to watch.
0: Yes, the the visuals, the cinematography, you do have some really nice stuff there. We mentioned some of those set pieces are very nice. I liked the introduction of the big set pieces with uh, Dr. No's lair. And I liked the performance for Dr. No himself. I liked that sort of introduction of this is a Bond villain and this is where a Bond villain I, you know, presides.
2: Yeah, like and that that, was, that nice apartment. His luxury yes. suite of evil.
0: Yes. <laughs> and the the weird tank of fish and yeah.
2: Definitely. No, bonjones yeah. have to hang out in cool locations or they're not fulfilling their jobs.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean that was uh I one one thing. I mean the whole the uh Tarantula um, handoff we were talking about earlier. I mean that was one thing that uh, you know they they, re- they really started right from the beginning with this movie where, where you know no on the on the outside it's all this you know just sort of typical looking factory industrial setting you know and then you you know you just get past that sliding door and all of a sudden you're in you know ult- ultra modern you know super villain lair basically. Um, you know, both in the, in that in that scene, and then you know, and then of course once they get down to the the, the apartment and the uh the rather well-appointed holding cells that uh, Bond and Honey get uh, placed into, um, you know, so that was certainly that whole sort of uh, you know six sixties modern styling. Um, yeah, and
2: then I mean that's Ken Adams' work, obviously the the set designer who did such a fantastic job throughout that movie. Yeah. And, and oh, in yeah. future Bond movies. I mean he he was great. He is and great. Actually he's still alive. <laughs> he's not uh, I looked that up. I was curious. He is still alive. And uh, he's really been an amazing amazing person. He fled, I think, Germany during before the war with his family. Oh, he was really? then an, he was then an RAF pilot. He really accomplished so much.
0: Huh, interesting. Yeah. On, on, I your, on your point, Edmund, about the very well-appointed uh, holding cells there and so on, I like how this, not just how it introduces it, but how it uses the idea of Bond and the villain being so very cordial to each other that you know each one is out to get the other, and you know they they can't walk away from each other. But there's this uh, sense of courtesy of uh, you know off- offering a meal and the nice uh, surroundings and this sort of gentility between foes, which is really uh, a hallmark of bond, but is very much uh, well used in this in this case. I think.
1: Yeah, definitely. And uh, and what, one other thing, actually, when you were talking about the, the cinematography and the and the you know the the, the look of the film, and uh, another thing that I really like, and just and also just putting it in in the context of the times, I mean the fact that you know they were doing all this stuff on location, you know, in Jamaica, and you know, not that they're you know they're not sort of you know going over the top with you know sort of giving you know, giving the local background, it's just sort of there, but you know, but they're, but. Uh, you know back in 62 you know getting on a plane and flying to all these places you know was you know you know you know this luxury thing to do you know most people you know didn't didn't get a chance to do that sort of thing the way it's just second nature now so you know now having this film or you know no you get to go to Jamaica and you know see the Calypso bars and you know and the the local color and you know seeing the Pan Am plane Touching down, um, you know, it was, it was you know something people weren't used to, you know, so that was sort of you know the <coughs> part of the part of the appeal was you know and then of course you know they're, they're going to get you know even even more of the international around the world flavor, but uh, you know in this in this film it's it, it, it's just that that local scene that uh, the way you just it uh, you know is really sort of steeping the action in that local flavor was. You know, a, something something that people weren't used to, and uh, definitely helped make it stand out. Just aside from the, you know, the Connery as Bond, and uh, this whole new, you know, spy genre that uh, you know they, they were virtually creating with this.
0: Absolutely, it gives you sort of a very uh, like a richness to the the surroundings and the environment uh, of this film.
2: Yeah, well, that's the, that's another one of the the key bond trademarks is simply the idea that they will film all over the world in real locations and and that's always been great. I, I've actually uh, I'm, I may th- mention in future films or for this one it's, if I've ever been to any of these locations I might bring that up and, and I've actually been to Ocho Rios in Jamaica which mm. is the location of that waterfall Dunn's River Falls uh, and right. you, you get to climb in the waterfall was quite nice really beautiful area the beaches are amazing and uh, when you look out of your hotel room across the harbor, it's the bauxite mine that's right. in the movie. Okay. And you just, you stare at it for—it's always there. It's still there now. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure they couldn't tear it down even if they wanted to, because it's probably part of Are the history.
1: You mean it wasn't blown up at the end of the movie? <laughs>
2: <laughs> How did it survive? Yeah, <laughs> it's very memorable. The, uh, visual. It's really nice. Oh,
1: yeah.
2: On the whole, I like the performances in
0: this. Uh, Sean Connery right out of the gate was, was great, uh, and uh, Joseph Wiseman, as Dr. No, also very memorable performance. But for the most part, the performers, we really didn't have anyone letting the side down on that.
2: No, and that's actually a very, that's very consistent early on for the Bond movies. Yeah, that's probably one of the things that cemented their their mystique uh, was everyone really was right for the part. It was incredibly well cast. Again, yeah. Like I said, Ursula, yeah, I actress, think... you, you, you remove any one of those three main pieces and the movie just wouldn't be as iconic. The, the bathing yeah. suit scene, which we haven't really talked about because it's so obvious, but the bathing yeah. suit scene is is classic. It's it's really iconic moment in film. Along with uh, the Bond, James Bond line, her coming out of the surf is is one of people's most memorable film moments.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. and it set the trend for the Bond girls.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and, all, and also that you know the whole thing about no know, the uh, the Bond girls where you know you know yes they're they're beautiful to look at but at the at the same time I mean that you know where you know the whole thing of when he's know first approaching or trying to approach her you know and she's you know more than willing to defend herself you know and then we hear you know yes in fact you know is very capable of defending herself if she's telling her story later you know so that whole thing of you know that they're you know strong and capable and you know not not just there as as eye candy
2: yeah I should I mean I would say also this movie is very is a very strong adaptation of Fleming. I mean it really does follow the story pretty accurately. Uh, the fact mm-hmm. that Fleming was around at the time, lived in yeah. Jamaica anyways and was probably on set quite a bit for this. Yeah. I'm sure uh, inspired them to to hue very closely to the novel. And they do actually. They they obviously update it for a little bit more modern period, but a lot of the elements are still there. Uh, the uh, I remember I don't I don't think I've ever read the novel in full, but I remember reading certainly parts of it the uh, uh, Dr. No puts Bond through a sort of a rat race kind of maze to test him. And the movie has this at the end where Bond's crawling through the ducts. It's really not the same thing, but the idea is still there. It's like they sort of wanted to use the concept, but not actually use it uh, exactly like it was in the book.
0: Yes. I know they were definitely um, very keen on being uh, faithful to the novel and representing it well. And that actually, going to Jamaica to film was part of that. Yep. Now we should talk about things we didn't like so much in this. I can start that off by saying that the portrayal of the Jamaicans was, uh, <laughs> well, somewhat dated and stereotypical.
2: Well, Puss wasn't uh, too uh, off the mark. Yeah. No, I agree. That was going to be my comment as well. If I had to find one thing to fault it with, definitely that would be it.
0: Yeah, I think uh, for what he was given to do and how it worked in this film, I think John Kitzmuller was okay as Quarrel, but it was not a great character. No, no. The, The
2: scared of the dragon, the whole superstition... Yeah, it was definitely not the strongest character. The
0: superstition, the not too bright, yeah, it was. Uh, and a lot of that is just that, you know, that's how things were done at that time. But that was something that I think is a little bit unfortunate in this. Portrayals of women in it also kind of dated, not great in some points at any rate.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly with uh... the. With the secretary, I mean, you know, even though it's kind of up in the air of whether you know, yeah, she, she was, in, you know, in, in, intended to, you know, welcome his advances, uh, lure him, you know, lure him into the trap. Um,
2: oh, she thought he'd be dead when uh, he got there. That's
1: uh, she was yeah. just sort
2: of ad living at yeah. that point. Yeah.
1: You know, but you know, but but still, yeah. I mean, the sort of presumption of you know, oh, pretty secretary, I can just try and pick you up is yeah you know, is, is, is might might be might be fitting to the times, but yeah. It's, uh, feels a little out of date to us.
0: Also fitting to the times, of course, there is a great deal of smoking in this. Oh
2: yeah, the Bond movies, uh, in, <laughs> that doesn't change for a long time.
0: Well, I think it eases up a little bit over the next several years, but yeah, it, uh, you're right, it is something that uh, that is uh, is definitely a part of it for, for quite a while, but yeah, it was definitely... Uh, as strong here as it ever was, I think.
2: Well, the most iconic yeah. moment of Connor yeah. introducing himself as Bond is lighting a cigarette. So absolutely, yeah. It's That's like it's true. part of that scene. Yeah. yeah. If he isn't, if he isn't lighting the cigarette, the scene might not have worked. That's right. As, as yeah. Well, it's like that. The, the 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 casual way he says it as he's doing something else.
0: Yeah. Like he he could yes. care less. And those things are like the the stylistic moments of the smoking and that of cigarettes and that. I think, sticks around for longer in the Bond films, as opposed to just everyone smoking more or less all the time, which, you know, just the pervasiveness of it. and It it does take a while, but that becomes less common a little bit more quickly, I
2: think. Yep. I think our our criticisms of the Bond film here are really more criticisms of any film, and in a way, like if you look at it as how does this compare to other Bond movies in the sense of the various elements that we expect a Bond movie to have, I have really very little criticism because I think they got all those elements right. And in fact, it's in future movies where I might say the elements were not as good, and you can compare them back to this movie and say this was it was done so much better in the earlier movies sometimes.
0: Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And most of the issues in here were really because it was of its time.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say with the smoking. I mean, I was a a, a little kid at the time, and uh, you know, but believe me, I I remember the overflowing ashtrays, and not to mention once the Surgeon General's report had come out, uh, me getting indoctrinated in non-smoking and uh, taking my parents' cigarettes and flushing them down the toilet. So. <laughs> Very nice. But, uh, yeah, I mean it was. Yeah, I mean it, yeah, I mean it, it was. Just, I mean they, they were that, that that sort of thing really was just reflecting the time because you know no, everybody you know not absolutely everybody. But uh, I mean it was so pervasive, you know. And 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 of course at the time, you know, the people thought it, uh, you know, it, it 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 improved your breathing. So. <laughs> some of them did anyway.
0: <laughs> well, it will be interesting to see how some of these. Uh, Different elements and the things that they use and how they portray things Evolve over the Bond films of the 60s and then beyond.
2: That's what we're here for.
0: Absolutely. So um, Final take on this. I think you can tell where all of us uh, sit on this, but uh, Gary, all in all, what did you think of Dr. No? Uh,
2: I love it. It's always been one of my favorite Bond movies. And I, I always, I'm always happy to watch it over again. I might, I might be less inclined to say that about some of the other later films, but
0: fair enough. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to agree. This was uh, a solid film. It was, it was well done. So yeah, it's definitely a good one.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, a, a, a very good start to the series, and uh, you know, you, you can definitely see why it made such an impression and uh, led to so many more
2: okay so any other final thoughts guys no i mean i thought uh one other little thing i just thought one of those other little things to look at for the in in future movies um i thought that was kind of amusing it's not a major thought but there's a hotel check-in check-out scene i find in, in almost every one of the bond movies and i now that i'm focusing mm-hmm. more closely i wanted to sort of look at those so in this movie uh when i say a hotel check-in check-out it's Bond checks in and checks out the girl behind the counter or if she checks him out. Right. It's sort of yeah. it happens in almost every movie. Yes. And sometimes <laughs> it's more obvious than others. Sometimes it's kind of ignored, but it's a little thing to to keep your eye on as you go through the films. Oh
1: yeah. Yeah, it's def- definitely pretty obvious in this one. Right. On her part. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Well, I think that will wrap things up. James Bond will return in From Russia with Love in our next episode. So thanks for listening. Take care, folks. Bye. Bye.
1: Thank you for listening to Hooked on Bond. Find out more at hookedonbond.com or on Facebook. Hooked on Bond is broadcast on the Voice of Geeks Network at vognetwork.com.